First Peter chapter one, verse three to thirteen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled. And unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Today, many people separate spiritual and material. They think of them as two separate things. And what winds up happening is, you think that what's material, what I could see and touch, is real, is true. And then it creates a bit of a crisis that has had many people searching for spirituality. Spirituality traditionally overlapped with religion. Spirituality was about seeking God. Uh, and sort of the the life and the practices connected with God. These days,、uh, people are desiring spirituality, but not necessarily wanting religion or institutional religion or traditional religion. That, for a number of good reasons, that probably many of us could understand. But what they're looking for is something、um, that they recognize is missing in the way they are experiencing life. If life is just material, physical. Then it really makes it hard to、uh, have a sustained sense that things are meaningful. And if if our emotions are just a function of neurology, 
does something like love even exist? Because you make sacrifices when you love, but if love is not real, is it just something we've made up, um, then, then why not just uh, functionally do the best that you can, enjoy your life as much as you are able? Uh, many people are not satisfied with that. They say there has to be something more than just what I see and touch and things like uh, human rights. I mentioned that last week. Uh, some people would say it's not a thing. <laughs> it's just something we've invented. Um, things that are actually not just important, but without them, life is just, it feels lifeless. It feels a little bit like we're zombies, just going through the world as uh, animated beings, um, but where nothing has purpose. It seems random and meaningless. For that reason, many people are seeking spirituality. And a lot of it can be focused on examining what various religions, including Christianity, uh, would say. But a lot of it is really looking for something that, for example, could make sense of their emotional life. Or they're looking for something that is ethically sound. Um, or they're looking for something that provides meaning. The, the things that aren't holding together and the things that are lacking that are making life difficult. People are looking for spirituality. Now, spirituality traditionally, um, certainly uh, in, in the Christian tradition, was tied not simply to a hungering within human beings and looking for answers, but it was tied to the work of God's Spirit, with a capital S in the Bible, uh, where spirituality is personal. It's not just about um, having an empty spot in your life met or fulfilled, but it's about the whole of life being renewed. And what the Bible says, without the work of, without that work of the Holy Spirit, then of course life is gonna be unsatisfying and things won't make sense and things will be meaningless. Uh, we're looking at First Peter over the course of a number of months and highlighting the theme of spiritual vitality because it tells us in the very beginning, and now maybe five weeks ago we looked at verse three of chapter one, we've been born again to a living hope. So that image of being born a second time, being reborn, renewed, there's a spiritual reality that, that breathes life into us and changes and transforms us. How we live, our sense of identity, the choices we make, those are the sorts of things we see play out in the rest of the book. Um, often, God is at work in our lives in ways that we don't see. And God is doing things that we can't recognize and can't discern. The point of contact for many of us when, when spirituality awakens in, in the biblical view, where, where we awaken spiritually, we start to feel like we've come alive. Um, the point of contact is often from hearing God's invitation, his announcement, his word, his message, hearing it and believing it. That's often where suddenly there's uh, a, a bringing together of what's been separated. Now again, before that, God is often at work um, uh, showing us things or moving our life in certain ways, but, but, the, but the particular point that we experience is often when the message comes and we hear it and believe it. If the message comes and we don't believe it, it doesn't do anything. But if the message comes, and theologically we would say, if we understand it, if we believe it, that's the evidence God is at work, God is showing you. There are things that we cannot see, but God wants us to hear and to believe. And so the passage, the section we're looking at today, verses 10 through 13, has a focus on this life-transforming message. 
There's a, a word of grace, and the Bible says God has a message for you. God wants you to hear and understand a number of things, but they're focused. They're focused on his grace. And this is described as good news. That's what gospel means. And so Christianity uh, is largely about a message that comes. But when the message comes into our life, not just as information, but when it comes in our meeting God, and we understand it and believe it, that's when there's transformation. And so what I want to talk to, about today, when we, as we're looking at this passage, are, are, are three things about this word that comes into our life. And so if you read elsewhere, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when the word of God and God's message comes to you and you hear it and it makes sense and you believe, things start to change. So in talking about this dynamic life transformative word, I want to talk about where it comes from, what it is focused on, and how it transforms. We're talking about this message, this gospel, this announcement, this word. So I want to begin with where it comes from. For any of us who have been a Christian or been around Christians who claim that, that their faith actually makes a difference, there are things that you could point to that you can see. Um, uh, sometimes what we talk about, the fruits of the Spirit. You know, I, I once really struggled with anger, but, but God showed me things and worked in a way that, that I'm not perfect, but now I've been, I've been free of the grip that that had on me. That's a fruit of the Spirit, peace and patience. So we often look at the outcomes functionally. Well, what is Christianity going to do? And that is understandable. Certainly if you have somebody exploring Christianity, is it true? Um, it's no doubt you would look at the effectiveness in it, of it. But for many of us, what we don't always appreciate, it's not just the outcome, but it's the origin of the message. It's not just that it's a message that does something, but it's a message that comes to us from God. And it's that, that place of origin that makes it unique and, and that makes it powerful to make us spiritual beings because God is the one who is able to give us life. And so in verses 10 and 11, Talking about the salvation that in previous weeks we've looked at in the passage where it's saying this is what we're to hope, this is what we're to, to have joy in. It says concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, so here's the, here are these human beings, the prophets. But what it's saying is that, that the power of the message is not that these were insightful human beings that had something to share, but that the Spirit of God was at work in them. So when they spoke, their message was, was bringing into our language, bringing into our world uh, something from God. And, and here there's a, a predictive aspect where it talks about that they were inquiring, they were searching about a time that the Spirit was indicated where there was something he predicted, the sufferings of Christ. I'll talk about that later. But, but one of the things that we know is, or that the Bible presents is, is un, human beings never know the future. We could project out based on data. We could have a good hunch. Um, but statistically, we may be right, but none of us will be 100%. <laughs> um, and, and we also don't have the agency to make everything happen that we want to happen. This week you may say, I'm determined to call my uncle. 
and you could be pretty confident in predicting that it will happen this week, and you can make it happen. And odds are, if it happens, you know, that doesn't mean that you predicted the future, it just means that you uh, had something reasonable. It's also possible that you'll get hit by a bus and that you won't be able to call your uncle. That's a possibility. Um, when God speaks, he announces what will happen, so he knows what will happen, and he has the ability to make it happen. Um, all of the questions we have about life and what will happen, very few of them are revealed to us. But God is concerned to make sure we know certain things, and, and part of his revealing them over time is a reminder to be humble in every generation. Because God always works in bigger ways. And so, for instance, when God comes and makes known to Abraham what he will do, I am making a covenant with you and your descendants, they will be so numerous, uh, like the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. Now, that was a claim. Because <laughs> Abraham said, uh, I'm now of a very old age and I can't have children. And now you're making this claim about something that will happen. But what's interesting, you go back and you read Genesis, and, and God then tells the story of what will happen, about there being in Egypt and coming out, and, and he basically says that what I'm promising you, here's the next installment. It's going to be in 400 years. Here's the next thing that's going to happen. And, and the story doesn't end there. So God's working over these enormous periods of time, announcing what will happen, and the, and the Bible records this history which means in any generation where we can't even predict what the stock market will do this week, to think uh, we could make solutions now that maybe change the course of history, but to know the outcomes of, of our decisions in 100 or 200 years. Uh, the prophetic tradition was unique in that, that God was revealing things, and it was a revelation by his spirit. And we find theologically that's how we meet God in the Bible. Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's something unique claimed about God. Uh, there's something that, that has implications for us. We are to be creative, like God. We are to take the things that he has made and the ideas and, and work with them. And so creativity is good, but, but God's original creativity is unique. The book of Romans says he called into being things that were not. So when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it sets God up as utter, utterly unique. And there the world is formless and void. It says the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So there's the spirit. And how does God create? God says, let there be light. And it was, and it was good. The spirit of God brings things into being by the power of his word. And so this spirit that we can't see um, makes things seen through the authority of God who speaks things into being. This prophetic tradition, Peter talks about human beings who are inquiring. They're dying to know things because they lived in the story. So Moses was a prophet. But you read the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, these various beings. They stand in the course of time where they say, God has promised these things, and here are things that have happened, and here are things that we don't understand what's happening. And so, God, what, what are you doing? What are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to expect? And it says that God actually spoke again. God spoke to these prophets, making things known what he will do. And, and predicting things that Peter says of a most privileged generation. The prophets didn't even understand the very things that they were writing down, but they were faithful to take what God had made known. But now it's coming together in a life-giving way in your time. And so the prophets benefited, but they suffered greatly. Um, and you're suffering now, but, but you have this great benefit of knowing in greater fullness what God is doing. And so in verse 12, Speaking of these, uh, of not just of the prophets, but of the current generation for Peter's audience. So there are the prophets before you, 
hundreds of years before you who announced what has happened in our day when Jesus came. But now, people who saw what Jesus did have declared something to you, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look, these angelic figures, also created beings. They have power and majesty, but they don't know the future. They can't control the outcomes of the future. Saying the same spirit that hovered over the face of the waters, the same spirit that spoke to Pharaoh through Moses, the same spirit that made known to Isaiah uh, something of his majesty, but also what he would do in Isaiah's day, but about what God would do through a servant that God would raise up that Isaiah announced in advance. I could give a lot of different examples in the Bible, but Peter is saying the same spirit has been at work uh, all of this time, which means that the gospel message is a, is a coherent message of something world-changing, God who's over history, but works within every generation to call that generation into that life, into that story, where no one generation has all the power or the understanding or the ability, but there's this progressive unfolding that God is making his plan and his ways known that he then writes to the people in Peter's generation and says, you now know things that people were dying to know and they couldn't make sense of. And it's not that all things have been known. You can see even in this passage, there's still a future revelation. But there's a power in this message that now is gonna give life to you in a way that, that wasn't present previously. And so when we think about the importance of Bible reading, for example, um, in Christianity, the Bible is a hard book to read. And so in order to be able to read and understand it, sometimes you just have to do the academic things of just learn what certain vocabulary means, learn who certain figures were, learn about certain ancient customs. And so there are, we are to use the tools, the, the tools of our mind, the intellectual tools to understand things. But you can know all of the details and have no personal connection to God if the Spirit is not illuminating your reading. If you're not coming to know God and who He is and what He promises, if you're just looking at the facts, you could be able to tell a lot about the Bible, but really miss what the Bible is about. And on the other hand, God through His Spirit could open your eyes to put you in tune with what He's saying, and you could be filled with questions about all sorts of passages that you don't know how to make sense of, but God is showing you about His grace and His plan and inviting you into it. And we don't settle for either of those. We want to be spiritual and wise, um, but, but it's that same spirit, if we are to understand the scriptures, the spirit that spoke it, um, so that we would hear it, God is going to be our tour guide. He's going to be the one who opens our eyes. He's going to be our teacher. And so it's a prayerful reading, not just to learn the facts of the Bible. Look, sometimes you just need to memorize things so that you can take the whole in. But it's that humble listening that is life-giving. It's not just that the message itself has power, but when the message is applied to our lives by the work of God's spirit, then it changes us. So, so where the message comes from is important. <laughs> um, long before any of us believed, God announced installments of what he was going to do. And it was fulfilled in Jesus. And now we have the scriptures who bear witness to Jesus. And we're told that if we believe, um, then God is going to invite you into that spiritual work. Uh, you will not know everything at once. It will not be easy and without struggle. But if the same spirit is in you that was in the prophets, if it's the spirit of Christ who is making things known, bringing you to this central reality that God wants us to see, this good news of grace, well, then it will begin to change us. And so, just as we begin talking about this life-transforming word, 
uh, understand that where it comes from is important. It's a word from God to you, which then changes how we listen to it with humility, with hope. Uh, we're getting to know, a, we're not studying the facts of what God did in history, but we're coming to know the God of history. So that's where it comes from. Um, you know, in, in, here's an example for you of the power of God's word. In John 11, Jesus has already shown a number of signs that demonstrate the, the work of, the, of God's spirit in him in a unique way. He's been healing people. But there's Lazarus who dies. And, and like many of us, maybe you, you believe enough of what Jesus has done that you have confidence that he could do certain things. So here's somebody who's sick. I am now confident Jesus could raise this person up. But here's Lazarus who died. Now, do you believe that Jesus could raise the dead? Many of his audience believed he could. Here's somebody who just died. Jesus is going to raise them. But now here's Lazarus, somebody who died days ago. And he's been placed in the tomb. And now we're expecting uh, the biological processes to set in. And it's at that moment Jesus gives a sign that's a foreshadowing of what's about to happen in his own death, death and resurrection. He's going to raise the dead, but not just resuscitate somebody, which is to say, well, Jesus could do it, but frankly, so can the EMT. <laughs> if they show up with a defibrillator or whatever devices that they have. Here's Lazarus. Nobody could help. So what does Jesus do? What mystical, magical thing does he show that he's this guru from heaven? <laughs> that's not how Christianity works. He says, Lazarus, come out. The power of his word. A dead man hears him. And he comes out. That's the scriptural... Where do you get spirituality? It's the word of God who speaks and he calls you. And he says, this is not just something that you will know and see and figure out. But I, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the good shepherd, come and follow me. And the dead can hear that voice. The spiritually dead can come to life. And so where does this message come from? It's a message from God to us. That's how we have to receive it. And so what is the message focused on? Here's the second thing. The message of the whole scripture is focused on the climactic moment of what God does in Jesus Christ coming into the world, the incarnation, what John describes as the word becoming flesh, the, the, this spirit who's unseen, the spirit who speaks comes now in order to uh, bring the fullness of God's plan of salvation throughout history. And so in verse 11, it talks about the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now I've said this a number of times at Emmanuel, Christ was not Jesus' last name. And often when I say that, there's a bit of laughter. Um, to me, that was not obvious as a new Christian. I just thought, I'm Scott Strickman, he's Jesus Christ. Uh, he came from the Christ family. So uh, I'm doing some remedial work for people like myself that I just didn't know. The word Christ, is, it's not his last name. Um, his, his earthly name, the human being, is Jesus. A significant name translates to God will save as part of his mission. But the idea of the Christ, it's a Greek word that connects to the Hebrew word, which we translate or use in, in certainly in English or, or other languages similar, is Messiah. So the Christ, the Messiah, um, in, in the ancient concept, it was, a, it was an anointed person. That was the process when you, when you set somebody apart to be a king, you poured oil on them. So even there, in Israel's tradition, there's a spiritual picture 
of when God sets somebody apart as a king, as oil comes down, there's something there that hints at God's future pouring out of the spirit. But a king like David or God's kings um, are anointed by God, set aside, given authority to rule according to his ways. Um, the hope was one day that there would be a true king, a greater David, a greater savior, somebody who would fulfill all of the promises. And the hope was focused on the Christ, the Messiah, the savior, the ruler. And it was conceived of in various ways, but misunderstand, misunderstood in many ways. So when Jesus came, there was this carefulness about what people assumed would happen, that he needed to guard because they wanted him to fulfill their expectations rather than his showing them that they actually expected too little. God was going to do something far greater. So you have a moment where somebody like John the Baptist, who's portrayed in the Gospels as a distinctly spiritual man, somebody raised up, set apart by God in the prophetic tradition, whose call is to prepare the way for the Lord, the Christ. And so he asks a question, he sends, he's in prison, he sends a message to Jesus at some point and says, are you the one to come or are we to expect someone else? And it shows us something about the mindset of the time period. There was a turmoil, things were not going as they wanted with Roman occupation, any number of various things. But God's people who prayed, who searched the scriptures, had this sense in which the time is coming nearer. We don't know if it's today in our generation, but everything's moving to the point that our understanding, as God is showing us what the prophets have said, is that there will be a savior, somebody who will come in to bring things together to fulfill. And John is wondering, is now the time and are you the person? And, and that's maybe different from our mindset, our generation, where we live, but, but you realize the work of the spirit over the generations preparing this moment that then when then you read through the gospels and Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads scripture and says today this is fulfilled in your hearing when Jesus committed signs it wasn't simply a matter of well some of us skeptics need evidence but it was a fulfillment that the things God said one day would happen are starting to happen and so this person must be the person God announced and sent and so it's not surprised that the spirit of God is pictured as a dove coming upon Jesus driving him out after that, after he's baptized, and announcing a word, this is my beloved son, listen to him. God wants to make sure we understand the message, who it's from, it's a message from God, where to find it in the scriptures, but it's a message that focuses on God's plan of salvation, God's fixing all that has gone wrong with the world, and his inviting us and including us into it. So in verse 11 it says, the prophets predicted the sufferings and subsequent glories. And there's a sense in which the key to understanding the whole of the Bible is that somehow everything is announcing the, sub, the sufferings and subsequent glories. Now as you work out the details of that in any particular book or in your own life, some of it is showing the sufferings of humanity, what we do to one another, that makes us cry out, Lord help us. Some of it shows the great examples of an occasional heroic person make us say, Lord, we want more people like that. I want to be like that. But there's a sense in which God is making known over time uh, the world and all of the goodness as he has made it has gone astray. But he's calling it back and he's going to reorder it. And he's inviting us to participate in it, but he's showing us through the history recorded in the Bible that it's not going to be something that we do, but it's going to be something he does. And what's marvelous about this message of grace is the surprise 
that the climax is not his finally coming and destroying all the people he's angry at, but it's that the word becomes flesh, the very one whose spirit was at work hovering over creation and calling things into order that they would be good and announcing to the prophets to be patient and to be wise and to be just and to wait and to look to God. They're announcing that one day God himself will come. And that's where Jesus, who is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, lays a unique claim. He is the very word of God. He himself is the message. So when we read, we don't just look for the facts of his life, but we're watching this person, who he is, his character, what he said, and what he accomplished. And it's a story of sufferings and subsequent glories. And that's what's so remarkable. The message of God is not simply, you need to return, you need to change. But in order to bring you back, I will go after you and I will bear the suffering. I will bear the pain. I will come into your life and all of your misery and the world's misery and I will bring you back out into new life. And so he joins with us in the suffering so that we would join with him in the subsequent glories, not just the resurrection that shows once again the life-giving power of God is at work in a unique way, but in the ascending into heaven, Jesus rightly taking the only place of honor, the one person we can trust and follow, who pours out his spirit so that we would be brought into his life, that the dead would be raised in in a figurative sense. That's how the New Testament speaks about spirituality. It's life from the dead. It's not just a little help for your struggling life, but it's a transformation that begins in the same way that Jesus begins his ministry and there's a future fulfillment. God begins a work in you and he'll be faithful to complete it. And so these subsequent glories is what Peter is saying, put your hope on. Hope in the inheritance that is undefiled and unfading. Hope in what will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But know that even now, If you are grieved by various trials, that's the language of the passage we looked at last week, even if now you're grieved by various trials, know that God is protecting something for you and he's carrying you along so that after the present sufferings, there will be subsequent glories. And it's not simply something that says you can keep going, though it says that. But it's something that says, as, as the, the Spirit of God shows us God's plan and, and the implications of His grace that takes a whole lifetime of reworking into our lives, of changing the voices in our heads, the condemning voice, the critical voice, um, God's grace comes in and brings transformation over time as we walk with God. Uh, we start to experience these subsequent glories. And so there is a sense in which Peter says, you are now starting to receive the salvation. Joy is coming now, even in the midst of your current grievances, because you're starting to see that what God has done is so much more wonderful than you thought. And that's where the scripture is not about us and how we need to live. The scripture is about God and his plan of grace. And so we don't invite Jesus into our lives. God invites us into the life of Christ. And it's when we do that, when we hear his invitation, it starts to change how we see. It starts to change how we experience things. And one of the outcomes is that marvel Um, of all of the ways, if we sat down and said, here's this broken world, if you believe that there's a God who exists, how would that God fix things? And he does something in a way that we would not have expected. He doesn't do it through subsequent glories, but he does it through present sufferings. That makes this story, makes us wonder, well, who is this God that that's how he does it? There's a story I I think I've shared in the past. I forget, uh, but if you've heard this before, 
here it is again. But when I was a, a kid, I was one of those uncool kids who was into magic. I thought it was cool, but I look back and I'm like, I know, if I was into magic, you didn't think that was cool. Uh, but there was a store called Tannins in Midtown, and I would go there sometimes, and, and uh, in the early 80s, uh, one of the big tricks that had happened on TV was David Copperfield made a, a jet airplane disappear. And one time when I was in the store, one of the guys working there told a story that I've never, I've, I've tried to verify it via Google, I don't know if it's an urban legend, but this was the story he told. Uh, this was shortly after David Copperfield performed this trick. He said that, that Copperfield, you know, as, as a performer, is a bit of a genius in terms of how he figured out how to make this happen. It seemed to be a really complex trick. Uh, and, and because it happened on TV, uh, certain parts of the camera crew were going to see things that could give away how it was done. So they all needed to sign a waiver saying they would not uh, share with anybody uh, the secrets of the trick. And you know how good that's going to work. So one of the guys comes home and wants to impress his spouse, whatever the case is shares the story, so there's this radio show, this talk show, where they're talking about this trick that you see on, on TV, what he did, could you imagine that? So this woman calls in and says, I know how the trick was done, and explains exactly how the trick was done, and the people on the talk show laughed and said, could you imagine that, thanks for calling. They thought she was just, you know, a fraud. She explained exactly what happened, but it didn't sound like, who would do that? How does that even work? It just the, the, the people in the talk show know nothing about magic, only knowing that they marveled at what they saw, dismissed her. And so there it was. The secret was out there, but nobody believed it. Um, there's a sense in which the invisible God is present. He can be seen. His ways are made known to us. Um, the announcement of what he would do, you read through the Gospels, and Jesus talks about the sufferings and the subsequent glories. He says it, and I always read it as if they might be these awkward social moments where he'll say, you know the Son of Man will suffer death and on the third day will be raised. And it's like the apostles are like, yeah, totally. You know, you've been talking about this, we get that. And then Jesus is crucified and they're like, what happened? The plan failed. And then Jesus is raised and they're like, it can't be. How could a guy be raised? And then you go to Luke 24 and it says Jesus by his spirit opened the minds of the particular disciples and he showed them that Christ must suffer and be raised. He talked about it. His own followers didn't understand it. How, how does this even work? We know what's going to happen. God's going to raise up a ruler that's going to conquer the Romans. Yes, but not how you think. And so Jesus comes in, and he's with them, and he's misunderstood, and he's making things plain, and they have no way of knowing. But when he fulfills, when he suffers, and when the beginning of the subsequent glories start through his resurrection, he pours out a spirit that starts to show people so we don't understand everything at once, but we understand that the news is good news, that this God is a faithful God, that he's reliable, that if we hope in him, he will show us what we don't know and we can trust him along the way. And so worship is one of those things that when you, when you understand the gospel just enough to say, wait a second, <laughs> I'm an unfaithful person that would deserve to be judged and destroyed by God and his holiness. But by his grace, he came to do this for me, that Jesus suffered himself in my place. And through that, I have a share in an inheritance? Um, I don't know, I'm still trying to make sense of that. How does that work? Is this really true? Is the good news that good? But while you're asking that question, the response is to marvel. <laughs> the good news is that good because this God is that good. 
that spirit who speaks into the world, let there be a light, and it was and it was good, speaks light into your life. He speaks life into your groanings and death. And so the, the response is to learn, to ask him to show us, to walk by the spirit, to study the scripture, but it's certainly more important than to say, here are the things I can't figure out, and therefore I'm gonna exist in a state of discomfort until I can solve them. But to stop and say, this God is wiser than me and does things in ways that I would not have done, and his ways are better. (laughs) And so while I'm wondering how it could work, I'm gonna stop and say, thank you, Lord. And so where it comes from, it comes from God. What it's focused on is a message about Christ. And when he shows us that, it, it, it renews us. It takes us out of our, um, our inward looking, our hopelessness in the world, and it starts to change us. And so I just want to end by saying something about how it transforms. How does this gospel message transform? So, of course, this won't be comprehensive. But I just want one installment uh, from this passage on how believing this message brings a more thorough change. It starts a new course of action in our lives. Um, verse 13, therefore, so, so here's, here's the actionable item of what he's been saying. Now, now here's something, something conclusive. Here's why I'm talking about this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that word revelation again, It's something that that we can't figure out. It's something we can't see. It's something we can't grasp. It's something God will show us. So one day, Jesus will be revealed and there will be a renewal of all things. He's saying, for now, set your hope fully on what? On grace. That's what Peter is really about. Read the very last words of Peter. He wants us to know the true grace of God. So he's saying, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. So now, in, in this week, what do you do? Will you live differently? The transformation begins in your choices, your decisions, how you live. So prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. He's not saying set your hope so fully on this that don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about our corrupt world. Don't worry about the poor. Don't worry about social issues. All of that, that's material. That's this world. We want you to focus on spiritual. It's not the Bible that makes you choose between material and spiritual. The Bible says God makes material things and breathes life into them. (laughs) And so this hope that you set yourself fully on now creates a sober-mindedness. You're now more in tune with a world that is worse than we want to admit, but more fundamentally good than we sometimes see. And so with a sober-minded view, now Jesus as your teacher, he's going to tell you, ah, what anybody else would do there is to throw a punch, but that's not what you do. I'm calling you to love your enemy. And so you prepare your minds for action. If God is gracious, if grace is real, if I'm going to live my life in a new way, not uh, as, as my instincts guide or not as the world interprets for me, but if the God of grace is my teacher, then with a new soberness, with a, with a new way of seeing, not just seeing what's physically before me, but, but with a faith that I hear that helps me interpret Now what I see, I make sense of differently. Being sober-minded, I prepare my mind for action. So you go into the world and you say, despite how the world lives, I have to choose differently in many cases 
because I believe in the God of grace. I've heard his word and invitation, and he has prepared an inheritance that will be mine. And so I'm going to live according to that in the world. And it's this future reality that's important rather than a material world in which we live and a spiritual world that we imagine, which then allows us to say, well, I want to escape the disease in my body and just think that my disembodied soul one day will be fine. It's understandable we think that, but, but here it's not that there are two places, but there are, there's the present and there's the future. And material and spirit are coming together in the renewal and the resurrection. And so what we're told is that we live as a future-aged people in the present. That, that's what marks the Christian apart, by setting our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. We say, if that is reality, then I'm gonna live now in this world. So if my colleagues are so eager to earn money that they will make corrupt choices, I'm gonna live for a future that says I, I don't have to, to do that. If, if my friends conceive of sexuality in a way that thinks of life just as material or just as spiritual, but have no, no sense of what the body is for and what I'm doing, well then I need to be sober-minded. I need to think differently. The, the Christian winds up reinterpreting reality and making choices that in any given time or any given place seem odd to the people around us. And the reason it seems odd is not simply that uh, sometimes we think we're morally superior. That obviously we should never have. It's not that we're the better or the wiser, but that, that we're living according to an age that have not, has not yet been realized. We're, we're people of the future in a sense. And so what I'm talking about here is, is just to try to help you think about the disconnect between how we try to live and whether or not the world recognizes and appreciates it or pushes against it. If you think of the way trends work, you know, these days, I think, especially uh, because of technology, we're always able to really be up on things exactly as they're happening. You know, news is out there, and, and therefore the desire to be a part, the center, socially accepted, is, is there in all of us. Uh, an example of where I saw this, so, so I'm watching the show, uh, a series of unfortunate events based on the Lemony Snicket books, and uh, there's the episode, or the two episodes in the book, uh, in the TV show, I think it's from the sixth book, The Ursat's Elevator where you're following these three orphans getting placed in these various homes. And so in, in this episode, they're, they're placed in an urban home, in a city. Uh, a wealthy uh, couple who lives in a, in a tall building, and uh, the, the, the spouse, the wife, uh, Esme, I now forget what her last name is. There's an irony in the last name. Uh, she is this very trendy person moment by moment, very aware of what's in and what's out. So, so the orphans go to the building and the doorman explains to them, dark is in, light is out. So it's very dimly lit. The colors of the walls are dark. They show up, they go up, and they're wearing these clothes and the woman says, pinstripe suits are in. What you are wearing is out. The next day they're wearing pinstripe suits. They go to this restaurant and they decide not to eat there because the restaurant is not in and they go to another restaurant that is the in restaurant. And in the middle of the meal, somebody delivers a newspaper that says that restaurant is now out and the other restaurant is in and everybody gets up and leaves the restaurant and goes to the new in restaurant. So it's this, it's this picture of this superficial, uh, corrupt urban type who always needs to be exactly in with society. And that temptation comes to all of us, right? You, you want to be in with what's going on. And so we're, what Christians do, we wind up having one of two options. We strive for relevance for any number of reasons. It could be a good reason. We really want to be effective in our generation. But it could also be who wants to be alienated, who wants to be isolated. We want to be accepted. 
So we aim for the relevance to say the second society changes, we need to keep up. If we don't change with them, the church is going to be irrelevant, ineffective, we'll get laughed at. One option in Christianity is stay relevant. Be ready to change at a moment. By the benediction, I may give you some new philosophy or new ethic to live. Wait for it. <laughs> so that's, that's typically what, what more sort of like younger urban churches do. Now the, the Presbyterians, we say the way we're not going to fall for that is just by not changing anything. And so we're not concerned about relevant. And what we do is to say, well, this is very relevant if you lived in Germany in the 16th century. This is like cutting edge. And so our two options are either to do the constantly changing and reinvent yourself according to everyone's standards or to hold back and then find that you're really holding on to what was simply relevant at one period of time. The alternative, which is not easy, is to say you need to be a person of the future. And isn't there always somebody in every generation, the guy that's composing music, that people like this is terrible? The woman who writes a book and everyone says, this is the worst book ever, and then 100 years later, it's like, isn't the book that this woman wrote the greatest book ever? And it's because uh, she was ahead of her time. But nobody can see it because people were so consumed by, I'm just gonna interpret based on what's here now, or I'm gonna reject what's here now based on what I think was better once. Uh, the Christian vision says, set your hope fully on the grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a fullness that we ourselves, even though Jesus has suffered death and been raised, are not yet experiencing. So we have this good transformative news and yet we still grapple with our lust problem. We still suffer biological disorders. We still have family problems. And so uh, there's hope. Life has been brought in. We're, we approach it differently. We live according to the Spirit. But we're told that there's a future age when, when God, as he fixed it now, will fully fix things. We will participate in that. So what it means by setting our hope fully there, there's something about that reality and all of its glory that the scripture attests to that says now, go into the world and live now, which means on the one hand, you will have an impact. If you live by grace in a world that does not live by grace, you will have an impact. And sometimes people will recognize the genius of the spirit at work in you. But sometimes it's going to be different enough from what other people are doing. And they're going to think you're uncool, you're unsophisticated, you're unhip. They're going to hate you at times. What Jesus says is, don't let them hate you because you're doing terrible things. Let them hate you because you're so full of grace, something that they have not understood. That in the process of your continuing to show them grace, they might one day give glory to God. When Jesus appears, they'll recognize, you live by the Spirit. Your way was right. And so that's hard to do. But it's the work of being sober-minded. Study the Scriptures. Come to know God personally. Believe in grace. And with a sober mind, go back out into the world and say, I I'm going to look at the world with Jesus, my teacher, who through my prayerful Scripture framework, as I go back into the world, will, will help me to see differently, so I choose differently. And sometimes... I will receive the enjoyment of the greatness of God's ways being successful and appreciated. And sometimes I need to go through present sufferings because I believe that there are subsequent glories. And so I want to encourage you, be different if different means you're a person of grace, you're a person made alive by the Spirit. Live by that Spirit, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed and your life in this world will make an impact. The world may see it and reward you for it, the world may not, but there's an inheritance for you, however it goes. So put your hope in that. Let me pray.
Our Father, we are here as a people, all of us needing to learn, filled with questions, sometimes troubled by those questions, blocked by those questions, but sometimes your spirit is using those struggles to mature us. Lord, as we've assembled today, we pray for the fullness of your spirit to lead us, to illumine our eyes, to understand the scriptures and their witness to Christ and to your message of grace. We pray that our hearts would come alive, even with our current sufferings, even with those uh, situations that grieve us, breathe life into us so that we would have strength to go back into the world as a people of a future age, a people so committed to grace that the world won't understand us because we're ahead of what you're going to do. Lord, we are not good at that. We are not strong enough. We are not wise enough. So help us to be sober-minded. Prepare us for the actions of this week to go and to celebrate every good thing and to willingly endure every difficult thing. Uh, but help us not to uh, to grieve your spirit, but help us to walk according to it, uh, to stay united with you and to, um, to have our hearts set on grace, to have our, our, our constitution to be fully set on a future hope so that we are a very helpful uh, presence, uh, your presence in this world and our generation. Do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.